Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Thank you all for coming. Um, so this is intended to be an interactive workshop. I, I brought a couple of cases um, that we can go through, but I also want to make sure we have time to d discuss any cases that you have. So let me um, ask, invite people to raise their hands if they have a case or two that they want to discuss so I can time, time things accordingly. Mm, okay. What I'll do is I will do one case um, and then I'll pause and see if that inspires people uh, to bring cases and then I have a couple others if, if you'd like. But I also want to you know, make this most useful. Uh, so let me start with, with the case. And what I did for this first case is I um, put in an some information around the case to just go through an approach to starting an antiretroviral regimen. So the first case I go through much more detail and the other cases are, are quite a bit shorter. Okay, so um, these are case scenarios. These are my disclosures. Okay, so just as a reminder, these are the uh, choices that um, both the DHHS and in a moment I'll show you the IAS USA guidelines to choose between when you're first starting uh, a regimen. But uh, at least in one of the cases I'll show you uh, where you may want to depart from, from this list. So. Um, among the integrase inhibitor-based regimens, dalgatagavir, bacavir, 3-TC, dalgatagavir plus either TDF-FTC or TAF-FTC, the boosted uh, integrase inhibitor, elvitegavir cobi plus either TAF or TDF-FTC, and then raltegavir, we talked about this morning, plus TDF-FTC or TAF-FTC, and then one boosted PI um, <coughs> regimen on this list for the from the DHHS. And then the shorter list that the IAS-USA um, published recently, uh, essentially four integrase inhibitor-based regimens um, with TAF in place of TDF. So the case that I wanted to use to illustrate uh, choosing a regimen is here. This is a 45-year-old man who has sex with men who was new is newly diagnosed with HIV. His past medical history is notable for allergic rhinitis. He's on budesonide inhaled. His estimated creatinine clearance, his creatinine clearance is 1.5. His estimated GFR is 48. His CD4 count is 550 but his HIV RNA is 150,000. His HIV genotype shows no resistance, and he's B5701 positive. He doesn't care how many pills he has to take, but feels he'll do better with a once-daily combination. So the way I end up approaching someone like him is um, essentially in two steps, uh, deciding which nucleoside RT inhibitor to use between a Bacavir 3TC, TAF-FTC, or TDF-FTC, and then I go on to think about what drug to use within the NNRTI, PI, or integrase inhibitor class. So for the step one, the first step in terms of approaching this patient, um, I go through in my mind which of these pros and cons are most uh, relevant to this particular patient. And when I come back to this patient, I'll kind of come back to this pros and cons list. So a Bacvir 3TC, I, I consider in someone who I'm worried about nephrotoxicity, so maybe they're on multiple um, other nephrotoxins, uh, maybe their um, estimated GFR, as in this case, is already high. Um, the other pro is that it's in a single pill combination with dalgatagavir, which is an unboosted integrase inhibitor. Fewer drug interactions than elvitegavir Kobe. Uh, the cons, as I mentioned this morning, uh, they you have to confirm their B5701 negative. Um, about 8% of Caucasians are B5701 positive. About 2% of African Americans are B5701 positive. So it's not terribly common, but it is common enough and in this country, absolutely, you need to check that before you give a back beer. So among Caucasians, um, and actually, I've th this is a little awkward. Are people able to hear me in the back with this? Okay. So in the among U.S. Caucasians, 8% of um, U.S. Caucasians are B5701 positive, and about 2% of African Americans in the U.S. are um, B5701 positive, and about 2% uh, of Hispanics are uh, B5701 positive. If they're B5701 positive and you give them a Bacavir, they don't have a 100% chance of developing a reaction. They have about a 50% chance of developing a reaction. But because that reaction can be so severe, it can be life-threatening, essentially if you have a person who's B5701 positive, you should put on their uh, allergy list, essentially, that they shouldn't take a Bacavir because that's too high of a, a chance to take um, um, with a Bacavir. We can certainly talk about this. This issue of abacavir and cardiovascular disease continues to be very controversial. There are some studies that have shown an association with cardiac events. When the FDA did a meta-analysis of all the studies a few years ago, um, in aggregate they couldn't find a signal, but there have been additional studies since that time 
And so I think, as you heard this morning, a, a lot of people are uncomfortable in someone who you know has cardiac disease and using a Bacavir. What about TDF-FTC? Um, it's available in... TDF-FTC has the most single pill combinations. There's three of them. Uh, it's either with Efavirenz, with Ropivirin, or elvitegavir Kobe. TDF, as I mentioned this morning, because tenofovir itself, if you take someone who's on a Bacavir and you give them TDF, their lipids actually go down. This is because tenofovir, for reasons at least I don't understand, uh, reduces lipids. And so, um, so that's one potential advantage of TDF. The one thing to know about TDF, though, is it not only lowers your cholesterol, but it lowers your um, uh, uh, LDL. It also lowers your HDL. Um, so it's not just lowering your bad cholesterol. It's also lowering your HDL cholesterol. So your, your ratio of uh, total cholesterol to HDL doesn't change uh, when, you, when you get TDF. So it's still theoretic in terms of what that <laughs> lipid-lowering uh, benefit is. It's not totally clear if it's a real benefit or not. It is clearly active against hepatitis B. Its cons, um, as we talked about this morning, greater nephrotoxicity for sure than a Bacuvir than TAF. Overall, though, as we all know, it has relatively little nephrotoxicity, except as people age and as people uh, get um, treated with other nephrotoxins. Uh, there is a, gr a larger decline in bone mineral density than with a Bacuvir or TAF. And then TAF FTC, more, more favorable effects on renal and bone markers than TDF. It's available with Elvitegavir Kobe and Rolpivirin. It's also active against hepatitis B. But the con is that there's less long-term data, especially for initial therapy. So I mentioned these this morning, so I won't belabor these. I wanted to put these back up because there some of them are germane to this particular patient, and I'll come back to that. But this patient is B50 is, uh, has some kidney disease, and so that's where I end up um, using either a Bacavir or TAF. Uh, B5701 positivity, as I mentioned already, you, you can't use a Bacavir. You have to use TDF or TAF. Uh, high cardiac disease, I favor using TDF or TAF. Hyperlipidemia, personally, I will sometimes use TDF in that setting. We obviously have other uh, lipid-lowering agents, so it's not an absolute. And then osteoporosis, I would avoid TDF and favor either Abacavir or TAF. And then hepatitis B, I think there's reasonable evidence now for using either TDF or TAF, uh, but you have to combine it with 3TC or FTC. Okay, so step two is deciding between the NNRTIs, uh, the PIs, and the integrase inhibitor class. Um, so integrase inhibitors are, I think, optimal for most patients. Where I tend to depart from using integrase inhibitors, I will sometimes use a boosted PI, usually darunavir, if I need to start ART very quickly before a resistance test result is available or in a person with uncertain adherence. I'll sometimes use a favorins in someone who's going to be getting rifampin, either rifampin as part of TB therapy or I had a patient not long ago who was getting rifampin as part of um, uh, osteomyelitis treatment. He had a prosthetic device infection. And then rolpivirin-containing regimens are an option in a person who has a low viral load, less than 100,000, and a CD4 count over 200, uh, and who's able to take his or her regimen with meals. So here's a comparison of efavirenz versus rolpivirin. Um, so this is when you're choosing among your NNRTIs. Efavirenz clearly has the longest track record. There's millions of people on it. It has high efficacy in patients with a viral load over 100,000. And you can use efavirenz with rifampin without dose adjustment. Some of the cons, there is a higher rate of treatment discontinuation than with several other newer agents. Um, some studies have shown an increased rate of suicidality. There was a study that was in the Annals of Internal Medicine about two years ago. Essentially, they, they took a, a number of AIDS clinical trials group studies, and they looked at those people who got efavirenz versus some other third drug, and there was about a two-fold increase in su suicidality in people who got efavirenz. The absolute rate was very low, though. It was about um, just a couple of percentage points, but it was twofold higher if they got randomized to efavirenz. Um, in a study that was presented in Durban a few um, weeks ago, the START study that, that we talked about briefly, there was also an, uh, another um, study that showed that people who got efavirenz in the START study also had increased suicidality. I think it's rare, but in someone with depression, I would definitely, uh, in that setting, avoid efavirenz. And I think since we have other good options, I, I tend not to use efavirenz for initial therapy outside of the, in someone who's, who's got TB. Um, efavirenz is also not co-formulated with TAF, and it's also not co-formulated with abacavir. Rilpivirine. Rilpivirine has got the smallest pill size of any of the single pill combinations. It is superior to efavirenz if the viral load is less than 100,000, and it's available with TDF-FTC and with TAF-FTC. Um, the food requirement something to just reiterate to patients. It's not just any kind of meal. It's, um, it's a, a reasonably sized meal. 
at least 390 uh, calories meals, so not just a protein shake or something like that. And then be cautious or essentially avoid it in, if, in someone who's on acid-lowering therapy. And then this is a slide I put up earlier this morning, so I won't go through this again, but these are kind of the pros and cons of the different um, integrase inhibitors. So how would I go up about putting the, uh, this particular case together? Just as a reminder, the real um, points about this case is he's got allergic rhinitis, he's on budesonide, his estimated GFR is, is a little under 50. He's got a quite a high viral load, over 150,000, but his CD4 count is preserved. He is B5701 positive, and he's not um, committed to, um, or doesn't feel strongly about a single pill regimen. So these are what I think are the salient points for this case. You can't use abacavir. His estimated GFR is 48. I would avoid TDF um, in this setting, and I would um, be okay with TAF because his eGFR is over 30. Uh, he's on budesonide. Budesonide, um, this is one of the things that is, is um, I, um, comes up more and more with my patients. So for fluticasone, which is very lipophilic and has a very long half-life, if you give a protease inhibitor or a COBE, you can run into the problems I mentioned this morning. You can have exogenous adrenal uh, excess, so they can get almost Cushingoid. And then if the, um, if, you if the inhaled steroid is stopped at some point, they can get adrenally insufficient. So fluticasone is probably the most um, notorious of these because it's very lipophilic and it lasts a long time. But budesonide is another um, inhaled steroid that can, it's been reported with the same interaction, either exogenous Cushing's or adrenal insufficiency. So I would not feel comfortable using um, a PI or a COBE-containing regimen with budesonide. Now, obviously, you can switch, and what I would switch to is, is beclomethasone. For viral loads greater than 100,000, I don't use rilpivirine. And then he requests a once-daily regimen, so you can't use raltegavir, at least not for now. So the, the choice that I would make for this particular patient is, is TAF-FTC plus dolutegavir. So let me pause there. I have some other cases, but I do want to um, just use this as a setup, I hope, for questions and comments. What if his GFR was less than 30? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So if his GFR was less than 30 and he's B5701 positive, um, you know, the last case I have is that, and I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to skip to that case, and, and then I'll, I hope people won't mind me skipping around with these, um, with these slides, because I think that's a really good question. Um, so let me show you another case. Assuming I know how to do this. Because hmm. this last case that I brought, Yeah, is is that? Let's see if this works here. Okay, so I think this is the case you're asking about. So um, this particular case is a 50-year-old man with diabetes, hypertension, and chronic renal insufficiency. This person's creatinine clearance is 25, so you're not going to want to use TAF. His um, uh, HIV RNA is 30,000. The CD4 count is 450, and the person is B5701 positive. So is that? case, yeah. So, um, so let me ask you, um, and we don't have an interactive um, thing here, so uh, would you and this person use Darunavir, Cobacistat, plus TAF-FTC? Who would use that? No takers. Um, Darunavir, Ritonavir, plus Raltegravir? A few takers, yeah. Uh, Dalutegravir plus 3TC? And then Dalutegravir plus Rilpivirine? A few, okay. So um, this is the slides I brought kind of to address this, but um, so what regimen should you use in a patient who can't take TAF, TDF, or abacavir? So the example is, is this one. Okay, so these are the studies I mentioned briefly. For initial therapy, there's uh, not that much data out, but this is the data that we have. So there is a study called Gardell, which took people who were treatment naive, like, like our patient, uh, and randomized them to either get two nukes and boosted lopinavir or boosted lopinavir plus 3TC. And they showed that boosted lopinavir plus 3TC was non-inferior to boosted lopinavir plus two nukes. So this, you know, would work, I think, but um, boosted lopinavir has all sorts of toxicities. It's got a high, high pill burden. It's got a lot of GI toxicities. It's got a lot of lipid issues. So I don't think most of us would want to use that. 
The one I think that there's some data behind, so I brought that data, you know, just to go through one more time, uh, is boosted darunavir plus raltegavir. This was studied in a, in a European study called NEAT001. They randomized um, people in the study to either get two nukes, TDF-FTC plus boosted darunavir, or this um, nuke uh, sparing regimen, and they showed that it was non-inferior to um, boosted darunavir plus TDF-FTC, but these were the two qualifications. If they looked at those patients whose CD4 count was less than 200, then the nuke sparing regimen was inferior. And if they looked at people whose viral load was over 100,000, then boosted darunavir raltegavir was, there were more failures. I don't think it was statistically significant, but it looked pretty convincing as a trend. And then just a few months ago, they published their resistance data, and there was a higher rate of resistance to the boosted darunavir plus raltegavir. So neither the IAS USA nor the DHHS uh, recommends this nuke sparing regimen yet for um, for all comers, but they do both say, especially the DHHS guidelines say, and I, I think IAS USA does as well, that in the setting where you can't use uh, TAF, TDF, or Abacavir, this would be a reasonable regimen as long as they're not at those extremes of viral load and, and CD4. Dolutegavir plus 3TC, most of, in fact, I think very few people voted for that. There is one study that has been presented called the PADL study. Um, that took 20 treatment-naive patients, and it's a single-arm study, and gave them dolutegavir plus 3TC. These patients all had a viral load less than 100,000, and in 20 out of 20, all of them suppressed, and they suppressed very quickly. So it looked good as a single arm, but it's only 20 patients. The ACTG is doing a, about a 120-patient study of dolutegavir plus 3TC, single-arm. They're taking people up to a viral load of 500,000. So that data is not yet out. I, I, um, I don't think it's been kind of analyzed yet, so it, that's coming. And then I heard last week, um, many, may, maybe some of you saw this, that Viv, the company that makes Dolutegavir, is starting a phase three clinical trial comparing Dolutegavir 3TC for initial therapy to two nukes plus Dolutegavir. So that will be a phase three clinical trial that will answer this question as to whether Dolutegavir 3TC is, is, is good, uh, you know, is, a, is as good as two nukes plus Dolutegavir. There's a lot more data for, if someone is suppressed, they're virologically <coughs> undetectable, and then they develop renal insufficiency, and then I want you to ask me more questions because I'll be done with this after, after this. If you've got someone who's suppressed and then develops renal insufficiency, there's a couple of randomized studies out there. There's a study called Olay that I mentioned briefly that took people suppressed and randomized them um, to either continue two nukes plus l uh, boosted lopinavir or to switch to uh, a nuke limiting regimen. Um, 3TC plus lopinavir did just fine. There's a study with boosted adizanavir called SALT, same thing, two nukes uh, plus uh, boosted PI suppressed, randomized to continue the two nukes plus um, the PI or to switch to a uh, nuke limiting regimen, did just fine with boosted adizanavir plus 3TC. Boosted uh, darunavir plus ropivirine, a small study, uh, 60 patients looked also good if, if you switch. Here are the things that are being studied. So a lot of stuff being studied. Boosted darunavir plus 3TC is being studied. Now this is after they're suppressed. Boosted darunavir plus dolutegavir, the regimen that got mentioned this morning, is being studied. Boosted um, or dolutegavir plus 3TC is being studied. This is the one Joe Aaron mentioned. Dolutegavir ropivirine. This is a large study, again, only for people suppressed. And then the uh, intramuscular injectables, cabotegavir and IM ropivirine given every four or eight weeks. At the International AIDS Conference this uh, past month, there was a 35-patient study, not gigantic, where people were suppressed. Many of these people had resistance, and they switched them to dolutegavir ropivirine. They were already suppressed, and 35 out of 35 stayed suppressed. So that looked promising, but I'm not quite there yet in terms of um, you know basing a lot of clinical decisions on a 35-person study. This bigger study, the SWORD study, those are big studies. So what I would do right now is I think what the audience said this morning, which is I would probably use boosted um, darunavir plus raltegavir. At least there's some data behind that. Um, in, in someone who has a um, high viral load or a low CD4 count, I might be tempted poten potentially to add 3TC uh, to that. But have you done this? Um, have you experienced with one of these nuke sparing or uh, nuke limiting regimens that you want to share? So 
So did people hear the question? I'm happy, let me repeat it. So the question is, in someone who can't take TAF, TDF, or abacavir, say they're B5701 positive and have renal insufficiency, is there a reason not to use combivir plus um, uh, integrase inhibitor? You know, I, I think largely it's still based on, um, you know, the, the side effects that we all know about from ACT, the, the nausea, the fatigue, the headache, and then eventually the lipids and the lipodystrophy. But, um, you know, an interesting concept might be to start with combivir and another drug, get them suppressed, and then see if you could suppress them on one of these other regimens. We will see. If, if Joe's right and this study gets reported out in the next six months, if this takes people who are suppressed and this nuke um, sparing regimen, there's no nukes here, does well, uh, then that might be an interesting strategy. I, I haven't seen a study. I, I still am a little anti-AZT, though, so... Yeah. It's a good question. It's just that it, there's not a lot of um, uh, studies of it, but you're right. That would be another, you know. Yeah. So, you know, once you get below f um, 50, I always look this up, to be honest, but um, then you begin to, to dose reduce. I, I will say I don't think there's much. So... One thing I th a lot of people have observed is with this um, TAF-FTC, that's uh, recommended. In fact, its label says you can use TAF-FTC with an EGFR down to 30, and that FTC is not dose-reduced. So um, I think 3TC and FTC are so well tolerated that I think you really have to have a pretty low EGFR to get toxicity from them. That being said, if you look at, I always look at the DHHS guideline um, table, and I think once you get below 50, one reason you can't use uh, a back of your 3TC, the combo pill, you know, the um, or a trimec for that matter, the back of your 3TC, dolutegravir, is at least once you get down below 50, you're supposed to start breaking up the pills um, because of the 3TC. But I will say I do have a few patients here between 45 and 50 or 40 and 50 that are doing well on, on the combo pills. Um, I find it very challenging to take care of these individuals. Yeah. Yeah. So what have you been putting them on? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 Those are challenging. One thing I wanted to say this morning, but it's only tangentially related to what you said, but I wanted to mention it anyway. Uh, TDF, when it causes um, proximal tubulopathy, my nephrology friends tell me that um, it mainly causes non-albumin uh, proteinuria. So in, in people who you're trying to figure out, they've got diabetes and they're on TDF, um, if the proteinuria is mostly um, albumin, um, that's probably due to their diabetes because di diabetes is, uh, is a more of a glomerular problem, glomerular leakage. If they've got a, um, and they, there's apparently these ratios, you know, albumin to protein, so there's albumin to creatinine ratios, but then there's ratios that you can use between albumin and protein. And sometimes that's helpful when you're trying to sort out diabetic nephropathy, say, from TDF uh, nephropathy. Now, I will say most of the time these days I am um, using TAF in someone who's got proteinuria because of, because of, you know, um, because of these issues that people are raising. So This is good. Actually, I'm hoping that there's, you know, I have a couple other cases, but I'd rather take comments and questions. So. <laughs> so, so the question is, up, yes. acute HIV, uh, 17 years old, yep. 70 kilos, yep. uh, virus load of 4 million, yep. uh, CD4 cell count going to change, but you know you've got him because his yep. R, uh, RNA was positive and his uh, yep. rapid test was negative. So yeah, so you're uh, first, and I would agree with you, I would treat such a patient, so we still, you know, um, 
the data for treatment of acute HIV comes from different settings. Um, the studies that are randomized that show that you should treat acute HIV, in those studies they would eventually stop treatment of acute HIV. And so I think these days with START and with all the other data, I, I think most of us would want to treat that person early. The, the, as we were saying this morning, the um, Favarance has a long track record in that setting, but so does dolutegravir now. I would be comfortable with dolutegravir plus either TAF FTC or Bacavir 3TC. I think either one of those would be fine, uh, even with a viral load of 4 million. And so some people have suggested four drugs in that context. Yep. Yep. Uh, and so yep. could you weigh in on that so it would be yeah. to Duranavir plus Dolutegravir plus yep. FFTC? I, I don't think you need it. I think three drugs are plenty for even the highest viral load. So the average viral load in someone with acute HIV is about 10 million. So 4 million is, is right in that neighborhood. And I don't think there's any – there was a study. It's not a gigantic study, but a study in New York City which looked at three drugs versus four for acute HIV, and they could show no difference between three versus four. So I, I would be comfortable using three drugs for acute HIV. And I noticed you didn't say abacavir. No, I, I would use abacavir 3TC with dolutegravir. So there are data now. So the, where people got worried about abacavir is in ACTG 5202, which is a randomized study, that compared uh, TDF-FTC, but the pairing was with either efavirenz or with boosted atazanavir. In that study, 5202, the patients randomized to Bacavir 3TC with either efavirenz or boosted atazanavir, and the viral load was over 100,000, did less well than if they were randomized to TDF-FTC with either efavirenz or boosted atazanavir. So that's where people started getting worried a little bit about Bacavir 3TC at high viral loads. But all the recent dolutegravir data with Bacavir 3TC, it looks very good with patients whose viral load is over 100,000, just as good as, as um, the tenofovir-containing regimens. So if you're going to pair it, out, um, it with uh, dolutegravir, I'm comfortable using Bacavir. And finally then, the scenario I uh, painted didn't have any resistance testing. Yep. And so does the absence of resistance testing at the time that you start therapy uh, argue for starting four drugs at the same time, or given the fact that you're doing it blindly from that perspective, you're yep. still comfortable with three drugs? Yeah, I am still comfortable with three drugs. I mean, I guess if you had, if you made it even more challenging where the person, say, had transmitted drug resistance, uh, had, thinks that they got HIV from someone who they knew was resistant. But in general, the rates of transmitted drug resistance are low enough, especially to uh, the integrase inhibitors and to PIs, that I think that um, it is reasonable to start with three drugs. You, where I work also, I can get a resistance test back in about one to two weeks. Um, it's not four or five weeks like it used to be a, f a few years, you know, 10 years ago. And so, um, so I do feel comfortable starting with three drugs, even uh, in, in someone who has acute HIV. Other people have experience with that or comments about that? Obviously, you know, this is, th that's what I feel comfortable with. A comment or a question? Yeah, fair, you know, um, that's that would, I guess, be my hesitation if I was going to start the same day. Um, um, I think, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm kind of playing this out that you're going to be starting in the next one or two or three days. And more um, I, I, I know the person who, uh, our, uh, B5701 testing is done at our institution by our um, bone marrow transplant lab, and so the person who does that will sometimes do it for us in the same day or two. How long does it take you to get the uh, B57 back? Ten days, yeah. So that would that would be a reason not to use a bacavir in that setting. Because if you're going to treat acute HIV, my sense is you should just treat it quickly. You sh you shouldn't wait two weeks to treat it if you can. And that I would then choose um, a non-abacavir containing regimen. That setting, most people are usually sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Other comments about either acute HIV or any other questions? I can go back to cases, but I'm happy to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in the context of uh, well, uh, the emphasis in TB. Yeah. Uh, so if you had TB and newly diagnosed HIV. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the timing of when to start, or. Good question. So I didn't bring the slide, but I'll um, tell you how I think of um, OIs, and I'll, g I'll get to TB. So in terms of timing of when to start. So 
Um, there are certain OIs that essentially you can't treat without ARVs. So good examples of that are microspiridiosis. There's no treatment really for microspiridiosis. Cryptospiridiosis, we sometimes use nidazoxanide, but it, it doesn't work well. So there you're essentially treating the OI with your ARVs, PML. Um, so there, obviously, you start um, uh, ART as part of your, your treatment for the OI. Um, then other OIs like pneumocystis and toxo, where we have good treatments for, uh, most of us uh, will start the ART within about two weeks, as soon as we know that they're tolerating the PCP therapy or the toxo therapy. So on the shorter end of two weeks, but certainly by two weeks. The exception that many of us still wait a little bit longer is for cryptococcal meningitis. The, the code study, which looked at, it was a randomized study looking at early ART versus deferred ART, did find an advantage in cryptomeningitis for waiting about four to five weeks. That was done largely in Africa. Um, I will say I, I don't tend to start for cryptomeningitis. Each crypto case is different. You know, there's never a crypto case that's the same as the one before. But um, I tend to, to not start quite as early for cryptomeningitis. Um, but I do get uncomfortable because usually their CD4 count is well under 50, waiting you know five weeks. So somewhere between two to five weeks is when I start for crypto. For TB, uh, there are randomized trials for a TB. Um, <coughs> what the WHO says, and I don't quite agree with this, is if your um, CD4 count is less than 50 and you have HIV TB, you should start um, uh, your um, ART within about two weeks of starting TB therapy. But they say if your CD4 count is over 50, that you can wait anywhere from two to eight weeks. I, I would wait, I would start closer to the two week point, even in someone whose CD4 count is, you know, 100 or 150. I get nervous waiting eight weeks uh, in anyone whose CD4 count is less than 200. So, so that's, that's the timing issue. In terms of what to give, um, I think it comes down to you, you're, in general, probably not going to use a boosted PI because of drug interactions um, between the boosted PI and the rifamycin. You can use rifabutin with boosted PIs. Uh, you always have, I always have to look up the exact dosing of the rifabutin with <coughs> the boosted PI or with the cobacistat. You have two choices. You can either use efavirenz, where we have a lot of data, or if you have someone who's got depression or other things that you don't want to use efavirenz, then you can use dolutegravir or raltegravir, not the cobi-elvitegravir, because cobi interacts with rifampin. You can use dolutegravir or, or um, raltegravir, but you do need to increase the dose. I think it's essentially you double, you, you um, do use twice the the dose uh, when you're using raltegravir with rifampin. That may be a case where you might want to use rifabutin for the TB therapy. I have a I have a drug drug interaction question. Sh sure, sure. Um, I have a. a I'm sorry. I raise your. I just. I'm like totally lost. Okay, guys. <laughs> Thank you. I have a transgender uh, female recently uh, diagnosed with HIV. Hasn't started medication um, yet. Would prefer not to. Uh, syphilis positive, um, has been on uh, estradiol and um, uh, what is it, esternamide? I think I said that correct, uh, or Proscar, uh, for you know hormone yep. treatment for about eight months. Okay. Just recently came to me from Atlanta. Okay. So um, when I was reading up on the drug drug interaction, it really zeroed in on TDF and FTC. Hmm. And um, I just need to know, you know, when this person comes back to me, for the most part, you yeah. know, she's pretty healthy. Yeah. But for when looking at a, a regimen, would I would just initially start off with the integrase uh, inhibitors? Would I start thinking that way just with the thought of the TDF having that drug-drug interaction with her hormones? Yeah, that's a very good question. I, um, I usually don't think of TDF as having many drug interactions. There's one that's relatively common, which is this um, with the diposphere, part of the hep C therapy. Uh, if you're on TDF with a, a, um, a PI or a cobacistat, the diposphere raises TDF levels. The hormone levels, I think in the talk we heard this morning from uh, Tanya Petit, she did mention TDF and hormones. I honestly was not aware of that TDF estradiol interaction until she mentioned that. So I know efavirenz and some of the other um, uh, agents we use can have hormone interactions. I end up with having to look it up. So I, I was not aware of the TDF hormone. Does anyone else know the details of the TDF estradiol interaction? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I do end up relying on the University of Liverpool site. I do Liverpool HIV, so it sounds like you did that. But um, did they say that you can't use TDF with estradiol, or did they say that there's a lowering, uh, somewhat of a lowering? Because a lot of these things, um, there's a lowering, but there's not enough to make it clinically relevant. Well, they they said that there is a lowering. Yeah. They, they want, you know, just be aware of it. Yeah, yeah. And so with that thought, you yeah. know, I, yeah. I'm thinking... I'd just rather just leave it yep. alone. I would just yep. rather go for just something else. And so I guess I would just stick yep. with the integrase to well start in off with so the So integrase inhibitors, um, you're right, will have fewer interactions as long as it's dolutegavir or raltegavir. Um, you could then use a bacavir 3TC dolutegavir because then you're away from that TDF issue. So okay. Yeah. Other comments or questions? These are great. Yeah, I. Yeah, do you do a lot of trans? Yeah. Yeah. My my sense, and we can check with Tanya. I'm sure um, she's still around. In fact, she's doing a good current <laughs> session right now. But my sense is that maybe on a on a research basis, there may be an interaction, but I'm not totally sure it's clinically relevant yet in terms of you know how like. Um, Certain drugs will be a 20 or 30 percent change, but it's there's no dose adjustment recommended. I, I wonder if that's the case even with this. Um, I had the impression from her talk this morning that she was saying that some of the research tests that show a decrease in um, perhaps they're wondering if it's hormone related, but I don't I don't think it's contraindicated or or it's gotten to that point of clinical. But I, I'll have to check. I don't know the answer. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. We also have a lot of patients on both. Yeah. And for estradiol, which is different from ethanol estradiol, which yeah. a patient might be taking if she buys it on the street and not prescribed. Um, so, in that case, we haven't had any changes in people's viral load yeah. when they start on estradiol. Yeah. 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 Good. This is great. Other, I I see a few hands over there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Would you would you consider doing the boosted Rilpivirine? Um or is that I I'm not sure you would need the Rilpivirine. I I um I personally might use three T C in, in that setting, but this is all kind of data free. You know, we don't we don't know the answer to your question. That's what I would probably do just myself. But um, yeah. Other questions or the reason I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, rilpivirine. We do worry a little bit about its effect at uh, at high viral loads, as we were talking about. Now here, you'd have the other drugs. So I, I just don't think we know the answer. But I would probably use three TC. Uh, can you comment about uh, using tenofovir on dialysis patients? Yeah, so what I understood, so TAF, um, the label says you can't use it in people whose estimated GFR is less than 30. So um, this morning people were saying that there may be data coming in the future with TAF and, and people on dialysis, but right now I wouldn't feel comfortable using TAF. TDF, there is a, a dose adjustment once weekly, TDF in people who are on dialysis. So I, in the past I would either use a Bacavir, as, as people were saying, or in someone, say, who was B5701 positive, I might use TDF once a week. We'll see. I, I, I'm interested to see what the TAF data uh, shows, but I, right now I wouldn't use TAF. I don't think we know how to do it. Other comments or questions? Yep. Yeah. Here we go. Right? <laughs> 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 this no simple questions ago. here. So, so Bakabu's yeah. out. You know, I'm just wondering, now we're injecting new sparing. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so end-stage liver disease and um, and dialysis. Um, you know, I think of the um, drugs that we have experience with, raltegravir, there is some data with that in end-stage liver disease. Gosh, I think then I'm wondering about using um, 
probably this TDF once weekly with 3TC, maybe with Ralph Tegevier. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's where I'd be sitting down and looking through all the, the different guidelines. What did you end up doing, or are you about to? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, with, with 3TC dose suggested for the dialysis, yeah. I have a question about uh, switching one of my patients. He's um, currently on a boosted protease inhibitor. I don't remember which one he's on. He's on Truvada, and he's on a Traverine, which is a BID. Yep. And he's viral load is suppressed. I don't remember what his CD4 count is, but yeah. but good. But yeah. he's having a hard time remembering the second dose of the yeah. Traverine. So yeah. He's got he's resistant to all other of the non nukes. Yeah. And he's got an M184. I see. So. Yeah. What can I, do I need to, you know, my initial thought, and I put this to, the, you know, another yeah. one of our specialists, yeah. and, I, and my thought was to leave him on a protease inhibitor with Dolutegravir and take the opportunity to switch him to Discovy or leave him on Truvada. Yeah. But, and they said that because he's suppressed, that you yeah. could potentially put him on Dolutegravir, Discovy. Does he have, um, do you know much about his prior resistance or that all led know, him to this? All no. I know is the non, the n all non-nukes except for the atravirine and the M184. Okay. He's, res he's resistant to efavirenz and nivirapine or, or he's sensitive yeah. to? Okay. No, resistant. So, you know, if you're, um, there are data suggesting that dolutegravir plus TAF-FTC, if, if your main resistance mutation is M184V, there are some data. It's not a ton of data, surprisingly, given that this is a pretty common scenario. But there are some data suggesting that dolutegravir half FTC would would be sufficient. What I would um, wonder about if it's all about the once daily versus twice daily. Uh, Etrovirin actually can be given once daily. You can give 400 milligrams once a day, and it does work as well as um, 200 milligrams twice a day. We don't tend to. The label doesn't have that in it, but the um, there are studies that have shown that it does work. So if that's what the issue was, I might start <laughs> with with that. If there's other reasons to get him off etrovirin, then I, I think I'd have to go through all the other details to see if you could just do TAF, FTC, Dolgitragrid, you might be able to. But uh, an intermediate step, if, if it's all about the twice daily, is to go to, to um, once daily atrovirin. Yeah. yeah, just wondering if you might be able to speculate a little bit on the future of cost cutting and yeah. as generics come out, just kind of what's in the crystal ball. Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, you know, it's even murkier than some of the <laughs> medical decisions in terms of what are the true costs of these these regimens. Um, I had heard uh, recently that the price of the TDF FTC um, albitegravir Kobe Stribal has actually recently been increased so that it's greater than Genvoya, which is the TAF version of uh, albitegravir Kobe. So, um, in some ways, shunting people more towards TAF. Um, I. What I understand about the generic landscape is you generally need a couple, and uh, this is way beyond my expertise, I will admit, so you know anyone can jump in here <laughs> at this point. But my understanding is in the next one to two years, TDF could go generic. I think probably there's going to need to be more than one generic manufacturer to really bring down prices. Um, I, I think at that point, the real question is going to be the following. If this Dolgitegavir 3TC looks as good as Dolgitegavir 3TC plus Tenofovir, which is this study that um, is just being launched this week or last week, then I think that may um, really influence things because then you're no longer needing either TDF or t uh, TAF. We, d we don't know what that trial is going to show. That's why they're doing it. But um, that, I think, might change the landscape the, the greatest. Um, I don't know. I actually don't know what will happen with in insurance companies and with HDAPs and um, in terms of if TDF becomes a lot cheaper. What, what I hope happens is the following. I hope TDF becomes a lot cheaper, and then that drives down the price of TAF. That's what I hope will happen. But yeah, any, someone must have a better <laughs> have a uh, opinion about this, or at least some thoughts. Do you have? I, just to comment, yeah. my understanding is that one of the reasons that Gilead did not produce a, a once-a-day dose of fabrin yeah. yeah. uh, are all going to become generic. Yeah. With the Favrins, yeah. Yeah. You know, even though yeah. It's, he has a lot of side effects, yeah. it's even true some people saying, well, yeah. you know, he's got the longest track record, he's done a lot of good, so yeah. forces down that path, yeah. even though it may not be the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are all good points, so. 
other comments? These are great comments. There are other uh, cases. We have 10 more minutes, so. Yeah. What were they starting the patients on in the San Francisco? Uh, so this rapid study that, that Dr. Fauci mentioned, um, I think they were using a variety of regimens. I, I don't know if they were using predominantly dollar I, I don't know precisely. Maybe someone has that data. Or maybe someone's from San Francisco. I don't know. But I, I, um, I think um, I'm not sure there was only one regimen. Personally, what I would use is, is uh, probably a dollar containing regimen because I NNRTIs, there is enough transmitted drug resistance because NNRTI mutations don't compromise your viral fitness that much. So I think uh, that's the one I worry the most about. I, I'm worried about using efavirenz in someone who I don't have a genotype back on. I, I think that's where I feel like I'd get someone into trouble. Um, Dogdutegravir, I'm less worried about boosted PIs, I think would be okay. So my Maybe they used either Dogdutegravir or boosted PI. Th that's what I would use. everyone hearing the comment? Yeah. You know, I um, tend to agree with you in that I haven't been doing same-day art initiation. The, the there are three studies that are out there. One is in San Francisco, which is most, <coughs> most comparable to, to what we all do. The other is in South Africa and the other is in Haiti. And I think in South Africa and Haiti there are other issues, you know, in terms of – I think they take it to the extreme. In South Africa they would have like eight visits between, you know, all this adherence training. I don't think you need eight visits to start ART. Uh, but um, – and in Haiti, it was it was more like you know one or two visits versus a, a same day initiation. I um, I think a lot depends on the CD4 count viral load. And someone whose CD4 count is low, I would start quickly. Um, yeah, so is but yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I think you know a lot of times I'm referred patients who have at least a CD4 count back, but they're talking about starting it at the time of their their um, rapid test comes back or their confirmatory test comes back. So. Yeah. Underserved yeah. poor population. Yeah. Many of which are illiterate. They don't speak English. Yeah. Trying to get through to these folks that you need to take this pill for yeah. the rest of your life yeah. is a major problem. Yeah. I call many of their first regimens a training regimen because you can't get them out and particularly in some other cultures in the Asian terms yeah. it's really difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The study w where, and that's just been presented, it hasn't been published yet, but it was actually done in Haiti where the co uh, comparison was same day versus um, deferred. I, um, um, I think the point is to try to really, um, it depends on the population and the particulars of the patient, but I think the idea of, of putting too many barriers, you know, like they, they used to do in South Africa, you have to come for adherence training six times. 
What I used to do, and I still do sometimes, is I have them practice with Tic Tacs or something for a short period of time so that they get used to the idea that if they're going to go to a movie and they, uh, or they're going to stay somewhere overnight that they need to have a, a plan in terms of how they're going to do that. But I try, I'm getting shorter and shorter in terms of when I start. I haven't done same-day initiation myself, but I think, um, I, am, I think we're all learning that you don't need to do what we used to do, say, 10 years ago, where they have to... For example, we used to not start ART in the hospital. Now we start ART in the hospital all the time because we want to make people prove that they can come. I no longer do that. If someone is in the hospital, I will start them on ART, especially because they're often in the hospital for you know, complications. So. I saw another hand right over there, I think. Oh, sorry. I thought, okay. Yep. I'm in Alaska, and we test them on vitamin D, not Tic Tacs. <laughs> <laughs> vitamin D sounds good, so... <laughs> but, um, this is I'm, a, I'm in Boston. I should be taking vitamin D as well. <laughs> <laughs> I bet our rate is higher than yours. Um, I, have a, I have to revisit this every couple of years. It's an elite controller question. The which one, sir? An elite controller. Yeah, yeah. Who's, this is a 71-year-old well. who I think we've had in our practice for at least 12 years, has never, ever had detectable virus. Yep and has all kinds of comorbidities, diabetes, chronic yeah. kidney disease, yeah. coronary artery disease, hypertension. It never seemed pressing at all to consider yeah. heart, but yeah. every time you bring up the, all the yeah. he's got all these inflammatory diseases. Yeah, you know, there's absolutely no right answer to this. Yeah. What I tend to do is if I have some other reason that I think they should start ART, their CD4 is trending down, their CD4 to CD8 ratio is yeah. lower than one, they have a high CRP, then I, I, I explain this all to them, and then I and um, then I would start ART if they're kind of invested in doing it, um, and they think that they could adhere. One, one thing I didn't say this morning, but I do want to say now is there are a few studies that looked at treating uh, an elite controller, and then they stopped ART later. And one of the questions is, would they lose elite control? Would you somehow turn them into a non-elite controller, which would be a really bad thing to do? And there is reassuring data saying that if they start ART and eventually stop, that they still remain elite controllers. So I do tell people that, that it's not, a, it's not something that you've suddenly screwed up your elite control. But you're right. If, the, if they've never had a detectable virus, they have other more pressing problems you're worried about. In the 800s yeah, so, so then I think it's reasonable not to treat those people. Is so. there a marker that we can use clinically to treat the need for Because I have a few like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So unfortunately, all the inflammation markers that are out there that you keep hearing about IL-6, D-dimer, even CRP, that none of them are validated in any way. Um, I think the closest marker that's clinical, but it's not. This is not proven, so don't. <laughs> you can't. Is the CD4 to CD8 ratio? I think if I had a person whose ratio is less than one, which we can get, um, then if I saw that improve, then I would say. You know, again, I couldn't prove it, but I would say you're doing something with your ART. So you're, you're saying so you probably would not start him on therapy until the ratio is less, less than one. Yeah, probably. And at that point, you'd monitor the, ra the ratio. Yeah, exactly. So just going back to what we were talking about in, as far as working in an environment where we may not um, have the capacity to speak the same language as the people that we're serving, are there any instances or studies that show that using something like a language line, yeah. um, who like a language line you can dial in and they can be totally in a different space, yeah. um, help us to uh, serve the patients in the way of communication and everything yeah. like that? Because certainly they understand um, the language they speak. Yeah. Are there any studies that talk about using a language line for people? Yeah, I mean, there are. Um, I don't know the adherence literature in terms of all its nuances, but um, we use what you, just what you said. We use, because we have patients from Eritrea and other languages that we're not going to have an interpreter in the room um, you know, readily available, so we do use that kind of um, remote language um, uh, interpretation all the time. Um, we also have been using, um, there are some studies around where I work that are peer navigators, which is another, I think, way to um, kind of uh, better communicate. But I, I think you're right. You've got to be able to, um, you know, communicate more effectively, and I think that would be the way. Yeah, I think to the do peers it. help where, too. Yeah. Sorry. Where Where do you work? 
Oh, I'm, uh, my name is Maya Green. Yeah. I'm the uh, clinic medical director for Howard Brown, 63rd Street from Chicago. Uh, okay. Yes. Great. So you probably have a very diverse Yeah, because there, yeah, it's diverse, yeah. and so there is the language barrier, and yeah. then, you know, yeah. the peers help, too, yeah. because they're cultural, yeah. you know, instances yeah. where yeah. it may not be that they don't understand. It may be that you know we like sometimes i know yeah. myself it may yeah. be that i'm having trouble yeah. with my yeah. communication and my you know, perception you've probably all read this book but the book that i found to be most effective in in that regard is this um book by ann fatima uh, the spirit catches you and you fall down i thought that really brought home to me kind of what you're talking about so um comment or just to kind of go back um to your slide yeah right here okay. um, with the CD4 count looking great yeah. and however the viral load is elevated. Yeah. Um, is, is there something that we can tell the patient? Because obviously they're taking their meds yeah. with the CD4 count being elevated, correct? Tell me which case were... That the one that the person was 100, I think 150,000? Um, ah, this one right this here, 30,000, okay. and their CD4 count was 450. So this is before they, this is when they first came to us. They hadn't started meds yet. So right, but I'm saying that if, that if they had been with us for a while, yeah. they were undetected, then all of a sudden they popped up something like this. Looking they, they, like they, they had renal insufficiency on their meds. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. However, their viral load, so we would consider that neurologic Yeah, I'm not totally sure if I'm getting the question, but I think um, in terms of adherence, the, the viral load, if that was undetectable, that would be the best measure that, that they're taking their meds. And so even if their CD4 count wasn't high, I would use the viral load as, as the measure of, of adherence. Um, I think the point I was trying to make uh, was that if they're suppressed, the viral load is undetectable. Then there are randomized data suggesting you have many more options. You can use any of these options if their viral load is suppressed. I guess what I'm trying to say is if you're suppressed, it's easier to stay suppressed. Um, uh, it's a harder barrier, I think, to get someone suppressed. Um, at least we have less data for um, some of these more novel regimens. This doesn't seem to be working. We have less data for some of these more novel regimens uh, for initial therapy than we do for suppressed patients. Is, is that? Am I getting your question? Yeah. So the person is taking the medication. Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily. Yeah. That, that's my question. Yeah. So that was at initial therapy. But yes, virologic failure really is defined with the viral load. The, the trouble with the CD4 count is about 10 to 15% of people who are taking their meds and whose viral load is undetectable, if they started with a low CD4 count, they may not develop much of a CD4 count bump. And depending on where you are, how long they've had HIV, you might have a CD4 count of 450, and they just haven't had long HIV long enough to get down below 200. So the CD4 count I wouldn't use as a measure of adherence as much. Most of viral load, yeah, yeah. This is this is more about continuing treatment, I guess. Sure. But yeah. how? So if somebody's been on a TDF regimen, yeah. and I see that their creatinine is going up, and I've done the test to see that it has to do with the TDF. Yep. How much of an emergency is it for me to switch them to something else? How quickly are their kidneys maybe permanently failing? You know, it depends a little bit on how high their creatinine is and how much proteinuria they have. So if they're um, Estimated GFR is getting down below 50. I would try to get that person off um, uh, TDF. The uh, like renal guideline uh, within the next few. Well, that's a good. Question. I mean, it usually it drifts down over months rather than days. So you know, I, you probably will have a trend in terms of how they're changing, and I would try to change them in the next few weeks to months. I, I wouldn't wait six months. I wouldn't wait till. If there's uh, EGFR is below 50. Now, I actually do have plenty of patients whose EGFR is, you know, 45 to 50, and I and many times I've known they've gotten there over the years. So those people I'm going to switch next time I see them. But uh, it depends on the uh, the pace of it. So if, if they were over 90, you know, six months ago, and now they're below 50, 
there's much more urgency than if they were 55 a year ago and now they're 48. Uh, you, you see what I'm saying? So, um, Thank you. Yeah. So it depends on what kind of data you have on them. The renal guidelines actually recommend that you start thinking about not using TDF when the EGFR is less than 60. It's that you dose adjust when it's less than 50, but I would hazard to say those of us who have big practices have plenty of people whose EGFR is between 40 to 50, right? I mean, a lot. So, yeah. 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 Yeah switch you to uh, off of TDF even if the creatinine is normal, say 0.8 or 0.7 or something. It depends a little bit on how much proteinuria. I think up to, so what I have started to do is um, do the protein to creatinine ratios and once the protein to creatinine ratio is over 0 0.15, over 150, that's enough for me to, to start trying to, you know, if it's very minimal, if it's just, you know, um, above, um, um, if the protein to creatinine ratio says 0 0.1, that's still very, very mild. But once it starts getting substantial, then I do, uh, if I have the option, I would switch them off of TDF, um, even, if uh, even if their creatinine was normal. So. Okay, I think I'm actually a little over time. I lost track of time. Thank you all for your questions. I really appreciate them, and thank you all for coming.